Hello, and welcome to another episode of this Super Learning Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Cam Hauser. I met Cam in uh, the OnDeck Course Creator Fellowship. Uh, Cam is a founder of four companies, two of which failed, but two of which were successful as well. And Cam is also into audience building, and he's doing a course on creating minimum viable videos. So welcome, Cam. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to hang out with you. Yeah, it's great. Great to have you here. So, and just to get a little background, how did you get into, well, you learned lots of things, obviously, building companies, then online course creating, now you're like a video expert. So how was your learning journey? How did you first get into entrepreneurship and how did that evolve into where you are now? Sure. Um, I have aggressive ideas about learning. I think that most of it is complete garbage. And so I think that learning by doing and jumping into rooms, into pools and places where you're not supposed to be and just figure it out is like the best way. And so I definitely get to that one of my superpowers is being able to do that. And um, I was really the smartest person in the room, but I was usually able to get into the right rooms. And usually if someone asked for a volunteer, I would raise my hands and that sort of thing. That's my philosophy, like in a nutshell, but just my backstory real quick. I moved to Austin 20 years ago to play in indie rock bands and do tech startups. I was much better at tech startups than playing in bands. So I kind of got in that world. And then when I was 30, I was aimless and had no idea what I was doing professionally. So I did what stupid people do, which is I went to get my MBA. And when I did that, uh, I learned a lot of valuable stuff there, but the way they were teaching startups and entrepreneurship at the time was pretty horrifying. And I'd come from that background. So me and some other folks I met who became my co-founders, we started this organization called Three Day Startup. And the whole premise of it was that best ways for universities to teach entrepreneurship is not by teaching the lean startup or lots of theory. It's literally get smart people in a room and have them start companies and see what happens. And so this venture ended up doing pretty well. We started as a little student group and it started serving all universities in Texas and then beyond. And at this point, you know, I spent a decade of my life, the CEO founder, taking it to we're in like 250 countries. I personally did, you know, on the ground work with founders in about 30 different countries. Uh, our alumni raised 187 million. We had acceptances to Y Combinator, Techstars, like all the big couple exits and exit to Google and exit to Etsy. So that's kind of a lot of my backstory. And, you know, we had lots of students starting really stupid ideas, like Facebook for dogs level dumb. But what happens with that is that you learn a lot. And I think you learn more from that than you do reading a book about it. And then from there, the next venture they started would be, would be powerful. So I did that for a good while. It's a big part of my career. And after a decade, I was kind of ready for something new. So I started my next company called ActionWorks. And ActionWorks, you know, our flagship course is minimum viable video. It's, we're making this bet that it's really important for entrepreneurs and knowledge workers to be on camera. You need to be able to look at the lens and speak like a normal person. And if you look like you're in a hostage video, or you sound like you've had too many beers, this is going to be a professional cost to you. And so we run a core-based course, teaches that. I do that, and then I run a lot of kind of innovation and education programs for corporates, governments, and universities. So that's kind of the, the longer form take on this. Awesome. That's, that's a very long story. So one, one thing that I heard a couple of times is getting in the right room, getting the smart people into the same room. So like, what is the most awesome room, I guess, but that you have ever been in and how do I get into the right room myself? How do I get good people together in the right room? I've been lucky to find myself in some really great rooms. Um, the, I was also leading an entrepreneurship program with the founder of the Silk Road. He was in there. 
before he went to prison, which is kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> but I've also been lucky enough to, you know, room is obviously metaphorical. So it's the thing where I'd be at South by Southwest, you know, a big tech conference in the United States and Steve Case, the founder of AOL was walking by. And so again, I don't, these are not people I know personally. So I would just roll up to him and ask to have a conversation. And from there, he'd usually kick me to, you know, his people in charge of these kinds of things. So stuff like that. That's another big reason I teach video is that, you know, rooms are very, very metaphorical in this day and age. I honestly feel like Twitter has done more for my network and connections and growing what I do than, you know, in the last like three or four years, it's all been much more Twitter than physically being in the right rooms. But the other thing I've found is that being a founder really opens a lot of doors. If you, if your introduction of yourself is, well, you know, I'm working in middle management at so-and-so company, a lot of investors, a lot of like people who do interesting things, they say, uh, okay. Whereas if you're founding something, it doesn't, you don't even need to be successful. As I mentioned, my first were definitely examples of failing forward in terms of the amount of learning and networks and contacts I got, they didn't even work out. So meeting people just through building something cool. And trying to find other people who that resonate with. Another thing that I practice, I have a video about this I can share in the, in the show notes, is Andrew Yu is a gentleman who actually works for On Deck. He's one of their product manager types. But he has this interesting thing called the Doom strategy, which means Twitter to Zoom. And it's this playbook he developed for how you have a, a very friendly conversation on Twitter and how that turns into a, a Zoom conversation where you actually could add them to your work. Yeah, I mean that sounds that sounds very valuable, and I guess you're you're pretty much into audience building as well. So, what are what are your best practices, your processes for building building an audience and then getting them into the Zoom as well? Yeah, well, that's a lot of what Minimum Viable Video is about is that understanding that there's a lot of value in having an audience. You don't need to be a celebrity. You don't need to be a famous musician. Having an audience of 500 or a thousand people who care about what you do is this very interesting kind of head start you get in everything. So for example, I will have to build entrepreneurship programs for some government or some university. They'll be one of my big customers. And a lot of times I will, before I give the deliverable to them, of here's what we're going to do, I'll just float this stuff on Twitter and say, Hey, here's what I'm thinking about building for this particular group. that's trying to solve, you know, entrepreneurship in this particular neck of the woods. People respond and give me feedback. And it's just part of the discussion of Twitter that helps you like having an audience allows you to, it's like, it's not even that when people hire you, they're not even hiring you per se, they're hiring you plus all these brains that you have just a tiny little sliver of. And so it's incredibly valuable. The way to do it, of course, is to have, you know, you're taking for them. So you want to make sure that you're giving as much as you can as well. And usually I, I see that by way of just creating content that's useful. I'm mildly entertaining, but not wildly entertaining. So I try to make my content educational and helpful. People try to do exactly that. And usually the answer is to just get started. Just get started posting videos on the internet that suck. You will see yourself. You will see terrible lighting. You will hear the words coming out of your mouth and you'll think, I'm so much smarter than that. Why do I sound like an idiot right there? But again, it's that process of getting going where you improve and eventually you get learning into advanced stuff. So when someone asks you a question, you know how to respond to it. You state back the question and you give a nice pithy answer so that they can use it as a sound bite for something later. All that stuff that you pick up over time, if you're on a really big platform and you really want to figure these things out. Right. Yeah. I, I guess that's, uh, that's, that's really your approach to rolling, like just, just do it and put stuff out there. And I think uh, that's pretty much what I've done after, uh, learning a lot from you in, in ODCC as well, just putting stuff out there, putting it on YouTube. But then I noticed like 
it's very hard to actually track whether you're getting getting better or not. Like your your viewer count increases very, very slowly. You don't know if your 10th video is actually better than your third or your fourth. So apart from just putting stuff out there, how do you help? Obviously you help entrepreneurs and knowledge workers learn about video, audience building, all this kind of stuff. So how do you help them also progress further after after they finally get out there? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it takes a, a long while to get there, but kind of what you said that we teach this kind of four part model. The first part is it's four C. So it's, it's crickets, consistency, course correction, and collaboration. Crickets means that when you start the, the world, nobody cares. Right. And it's, it really takes something to keep going when you work really hard on something and zero people watch it. So the next phase is consistency, right? Just keep doing it for a while. But I think where you're getting at is this third phase of course correction, which is just making minor adjustments and getting things going. But where things really start to get magical is again, the fourth phase, which is collaboration. And that's where if you have a track record, if you've been putting stuff out for a while, bigger creators will eventually notice you. Sometimes they notice you because you reach out to them directly and say, Hey, I'd like to work together. But more sometimes the way it happens is you don't even do anything. Like you just keep sharing and eventually someone with a big audience will share what you're doing. And from there, people will flow back to them. So, you know, what you're doing right now is an example of this, right? Every time you do a podcast episode, you're getting people who are going to share this, right? So you're in that, that fourth phase. So we just try to walk them through that entire process. But the thing that I really believe in is that more posts are one thing, tweeting is another, even on camera, seeing your face saying like, I don't know, it's just, it's tough. It's this, the camera lens is in many ways, like a mirror to ourselves where we just think, gosh, I wish I was better at this, or I wish I looked better on camera. And so the thing about minimum Bible video is it's, we're very insular in the beginning. So during the course, a lot of people, they're, they're not ready to post publicly, but they're ready to post in our kind of inner circle. We use a platform called circle that, you know, people do in online courses, but sharing a video where other people who are around your same skill level makes it way more manageable because you know, posting your stuff on YouTube or Twitter or somewhere when there's Gary V or MKBHD or some of these creators who are just, they're basically doing Netflix quality production. That's incredibly disheartening. And so being in a group of peers makes that so much more manageable and just again, gradual improvement in the same way that, you know, a lot of times like we don't, LeBron James may be the best basketball player alive, but you don't want to learn basketball from him. He's you're better getting coached from someone who's closer to you and your build and your attitude and your skill level, right? And that's a lot of what we create at Minimum Viable Video. All right. Yeah, I guess, yeah, like creating that community and having them collaborate is, is really, really valuable. How do, how do you keep up that, that flow of collaboration of that community after people finish your, finish your, like, do, you, do you keep supporting them? Do they help each other? How does that go? So we've tried a couple different things to keep the momentum going. What's happening now and that I'm really excited for is we just finished up the third cohort and one of our students, he started an informal meetup. So it's a recurring weekly, almost like a co-working session where people can get together, work on things, share knowledge, share information. The other thing that's useful about it is we do a lot of so we, so we meet for those times, but we also do dogpiling. The social media term for this is an engagement pod. And, and that means like big creators will get in a pod of other creators so that anytime one person in that group shares something, everyone else will go like it and go comment. And they, it's a way for, you know, big time creators to help each other. We call it dogpiling just in the sense that we're all kind of piling on and, and helping out. 
and in the same way, just in a much smaller way. So it's that thing of you kind of get this audience even, you know, beyond it. Just, we all know, like, one of the things we teach is about, for example, like on LinkedIn, people resharing your stuff actually isn't as powerful as comments, right? And likes are fine, but comments are better. And the reason that's the case is that the LinkedIn algorithm is they want engaged users. That's how they sell their advertising and make money by having a really engaged user base. So comments are that. And so we will just have everyone comment and like on each other's stuff. And it's this nice, no way, again, you're not alone. You've got this other group of people doing this difficult thing. And the other thing is momentum isn't that hard to keep going just because we're very much in early days. Like not many people have podcasts, not many people make video. I know it makes feel like a lot of people do, but on LinkedIn, it's something like 2% of people have ever posted literally anything there. And so we are very, very early stages. And when I talk about getting in the right rooms, we're like posting content is metaphorically being in the right room because no one else is doing it. I'm sure everyone will be doing it soon, but right now there's much more um, audience to be grabbed and influence to be had and connections to be made right now. I think it in the same way that like growing organically on Instagram is pretty tough right now. It's algorithms like very, very moderated and mediated and it's like hard to break through, but there's plenty that are not. And on the whole, learning how to tell a story on camera, learning how to share this stuff is, is pretty, pretty powerful. And, you know, again, the, the room metaphor isn't the perfect metaphor because it really implies that we're physically constrained in a room and, you know, Twitter, social media, the internet is in many ways, like the greatest, biggest room ever. Right. Yeah, definitely. And most people that you work with are like knowledge workers, entrepreneurs, and I guess a lot of them, even engineers like me. And if I look back at me at myself, like a year ago, like I, I wasn't posting anything. I didn't like social media at all. And I, I was very skeptical about the whole thing. And I guess there must be people in your cohort feeling that, that same way at how how can you get over that and always almost become okay with with the uh, i don't know yeah, putting your putting yourself out there and doing like this what seems seems maybe like a childish activity but which is actually extremely valuable how do you how do you get people to do that that's a great question so as far as that, that's interesting i know a youtuber who i've done some work with and she used to meet with vcs in silicon valley and they'd be like Oh, you have a, you're, you're a YouTuber. That's cute. And something happened where a year later, they said that was the thing that they were most interested in about, about her, right? The fact that she'd built up 5 million subscribers on YouTube was kind of thing that made them really, really excited to talk to her. So it's interesting to see that, that switch happen. And all great technology is ridiculed in the beginning, right? All like so much, so many like amazing inventions, like the automobile was a toy. Like there were toy cars before we had real cars, right? So there's lots of things yeah. like that, where everything is kind of ridiculed, not really understood in the beginning. I don't even like the term social media. I see it in many ways as, you know, most of your life, historically, it's been your last name, what your dad does, where you were born. And social media is in many ways, this opportunity to transcend that. And that what you say and what you share that's really what determines who you know instead of those other factors, right? There is something incredibly empowering and optimistic about that. And, you know, I'm not kidding around. Like, I'm trying to make my dent in the universe. I want to, with, with my third company, the one that was successful, I was able to help 20,000 entrepreneurs for 10 years and see all the wins that come from that. And, and once you have that sort of impact, like, it becomes like this drug. It just feels incredible. Like, nothing beats it, right? 
So I just want to do more of that. I just want to help more people through the education that I do. And the channels of social media allow me to do that at such bigger scale than if I just did it in my town. I live in Austin, Texas, a wonderful, amazing town. But the amount of people I can serve, the amount of people I can help globally, it's, you know, obviously it's just not even worth comparing, right? So that's why I think it's exciting to think about. I think I drifted from your question. Your question was, how do you do this? Well, one of the ways that we have people do this is one of the, one of the biggest things to keep in mind is in the beginning, separate your content from your production. And what I mean by that is if we want to make a video, we have to get our lighting right. We have to get our audio right. All these technical aspects. But we also have to get the content, the story, the, the words of what you're saying. Getting both those right is really, really tough. It's kind of like rubbing your stomach and juggling at the same time. So one of the things we do is we teach people how to do something called a hello video. And hello video is when you, you take a phone and you hold it up and you say, Hey, you know, hey, and I'm thinking about you. Hope you're well. I'm talking well. Anyway, hope you're good. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. That's it. And you're making a video that is for one person. You're not saying some really pithy story. You're not sharing the meaning of life. You're not describing your career and summarizing all its high points. None of that. You're just saying hello to a friend with, and because of that, you can then think about your production. You can think about, well, where am I? How's my life? How's this working? Without having to think too hard about what you're saying. And knowing that it's for an audience of one person makes it that much more simple. So things like that just lets us take an incremental approach. And that's kind of the mistake a lot of people make. If you think about this from a filmmaking standpoint, nobody ever recommends that you make a two-hour feature film as your first project. You make a five-minute short film. And so we're basically taking that model and applying it to how you tell your story on video. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, let's zoom out a bit about, yeah, to your entrepreneurial uh, journey. So as you said, your first two startups failed. So maybe you can talk a bit more about what you were trying to do, what you, what exactly failed, why it failed and what you learned from that, that, that led to your later success. I'm intimately aware of these failures. So I have, I can tell you plenty about it, but our, our first one was basically SoundCloud <laughs> for sports commentary. It was the idea that when you watch sports on TV, you're stuck with two announcers. And you know, the ones that are attached to it. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? If you think about YouTube and what it did for television, I mean, YouTube, television only has so many channels. There are infinite numbers of YouTube channels. That change never happened with sports commentary. It happened with music. You know, we used to have record labels that, you know, would choose certain artists. And then we had Spotify and SoundCloud that may let everyone share what they did. There's nothing like that for sports commentary. So that's what we did. We built it. The the prototype was really cool and actually worked. We did learn how hard sports commentary is, but we got the, the product working. The really hard part was the business model. I mean, the, right. like that was really, first off, like is a very litigious kind of thing. The broadcasting companies were like, even at the very early days, we're starting to tell us, hey, you, you know, this is completely illegal, right? And we were like, yeah, a lot of technologies when they start are completely illegal, right? Like Napster and file sharing and all this. We were, we, that didn't bother us. Yeah. And we were just two idiots in Austin. So like, it didn't matter. But the real problem was we couldn't find a business model that we could trust or that any investors could trust, right? The best thing we could come up with was, you know, serving banner ads. Like the way it worked is you'd still watch the game on television. You just turn the volume down. And then you go to our website, which would be streaming audio. And we had a, a little guide where you could, you could adjust uh, a slider and you could adjust it so that they synced up, right? And it was one of those things where like serving banner ads on that webpage just wasn't going to provide the kind of revenue that it needed to work. And it was technically fairly hard to implement. So that was the first one. So we couldn't get the business model right. 
The second one was a customer discovery failure. And for those of y'all who don't know what customer discovery is, it says, before you build anything, talk to your customers. And this was actually the big insight in the entrepreneurship world almost 15, 20 years ago, like this revelatory realization, which is don't build the thing and see if people want it. Talk to them and understand them first. And so we talked to them. We didn't talk to them in the right way. What this was is called anniversary time capsule. And the idea is that a couple who's newly engaged, they're in this very special time of their life where there's just like all roses and butterflies and everything's all magical and great. And we wanted them to record videos to each other. So the iPhone had just come out. This was a long time ago. And we wanted them to hold the phone up and say, oh, honey, like, I love you so much. I, I remember the first time we had Chinese food in Brooklyn. That was like so special. And, you know, it's kind of thing where they would record this video and then upload it to our site. And it was supposed to be a wedding gift that showed up on registries. They'd upload it to our site. And then a year later, the time capsule expires. And then you get this wonderful message, this like video that was made just for you. And people said they would do it. When we asked people, hey, now what do you think about this product? Do you think it's, everyone like loved it. And they're like, yes, sign me up for the beta. I mean, everybody signed up for the beta. And then we built it and we shared it. And all right, it's ready. Go ahead and record. And nobody would. And I would, you know, keep nudging them, keep asking them, all you got to do is record something and upload it. It's fine. No one would. And then another company came up. A company that maybe you've heard of them. They were called Snapchat. So Snapchat's uh -huh. big innovation was disappearing contest, right? They were the people who invented this story. So you'd film yourself and then it would disappear after a certain amount of time. The amount of people who posted on Snapchat who had never posted anything before, like skyrocketed. We were doing the opposite. We were taking the content, making it live even stronger. So we were just completely in the wrong direction. But that failure was, we didn't talk to people properly. We should have asked better questions. And if that's something you or your listeners are interested in, there's a book called The Mom Test, again, in Rob Fitzpatrick. And it explains how to ask questions that get to the heart of it. Because if we had done that properly, we wouldn't wasted all that time building the tech. So again, well, it was a customer discovery failure on misunderstanding walls. We were also a bit blinded. You know, you get, I'm sure you deal with this down. When you like build a product, you're involved with it. Just think it's the greatest thing in the world. And that doesn't matter. Yeah. It's unimportant. All that matters is the people you're trying to serve. Do they love it? Are they passionate about it? Does it solve a problem for them? And so both of those failures were what enabled me to get it right when we started our third company. I knew how to listen to the market. I knew how to understand that. And I was only going to try one more time. If the third company failed, I was going to give up completely. But I also did fail forward with both of those. And that's one of things where with the sports commentary startup that failed, I became known as the Austin sports commentary tech guy. And there was no one around who did that sort of thing. So it actually opened up a lot of doors for me. And as I said, being the founder of this company, even though it failed, still opened up a lot for me. The second one, I built uh, a lot of good relationships and was able to be part of, uh, you know, we built a successful product and said that we, we built it. We didn't build a successful company, but we built a successful product and said that we built the entire thing, built a cool UX site, hadn't done as much front end work there as I had in the thing. So learned a ton and both of them opened a ton of doors for me. Not to mention when I really went all in on my third startup, I had the confidence of knowing that I've been in a lot of these rooms before. I've had a lot of these conversations. So I recommend everybody have a failed startup. It's, it's a wonderful learning experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, just start a startup, either you, you get it and, uh, and you get, you get rich, right. Or you fail at that and you learn a lot. 
So, yeah, it's, it's a win-win. So, yeah, just hearing those stories and like the, the crazy ideas for your startups, I'm wondering, like, how do you choose what to learn and what to invest your time in? Like, some of those ideas seem quite random, like sports commentaries, then like, yeah, video, like the opposite of Snapchat, right? And then, <laughs> Now, now you're into video again. So yeah, like, like how do you decide what to, what to learn and what to invest your time in and what, what picks your interest? I can answer that elegantly from a, how do you decide what company to start? I'm still figuring out how do you in life decide where you spend it? Because I think that's part of the journey. If you yeah. want to be an entrepreneur, you want to start something. I think that's can be boiled down to a fairly easy framework. It's just called founder problem fit, right? If you're a startup, we're chasing this thing called product market fit. And when you have that, all your problems go away. That means growth is happening so fast because you built something the whole world wants. Very hard to do, takes a long time. What comes before that is this stage called founder problem fit. And that's this Venn diagram where one circle is you and problems that you find interesting, what you're passionate about. And the other circle is what people want. And what you want is the center of that Venn diagram, right? And if you have a good balance there, you'll pick the right thing. That's and most, the people most mistake is not that they pick the wrong thing. The mistake most people make is they don't pick. They, for years, go by and they never start. And the reason that my course has done so well is that I didn't waste any time. Like I've, I'm, I've learned this lesson. So I started a minimum viable video instantly on the third core. And I feel like an expert at this point. Whereas I still know people who are like thinking really hard about starting a course and they never really do. But I think the more interesting question you ask is how do we spend our time on this planet? We are on a rock hurtling through space. Our lives are short. We are alive in this blink, this blip of an existence in all of recorded history. How do we choose what to work on? And this is something I think about. I don't always have nailed. I think impact matters. I want to do work that impacts and helps others. I want to do work that I can remain healthy as I do it. I've, you know, being parts of all these startups, I've worked pretty hard and you know, I've hit burnout before, like pretty bad burnout, right? And had to manage and navigate that. And I don't recommend it on anyone. So definitely maintain a healthy lifestyle. And a lot of people, even still today, even though they kind of say they talk about that entrepreneurship, most people are full of it. Most of them are like, no, you should need to keep working hard. But I actually do believe that. So impact, I want to do work that I love, but I have one quote that summarizes my, what I want to do with my time on this earth. And that is... Yeah a life well-lived and a dent in the universe. So I want to live life that I love, that I'm happy, that I'm proud of. And if I do that, then I have the luxury of thinking about how do I make a dent in the universe? That's basically my guiding mantra for life. Nice. I like that. I think one more of your, I don't know, avenues of interest, I guess, that we haven't talked about is like online facilitation, which you've done a lot in um, ODCC. And I've learned a lot um, from you about how to... Yeah, make people comfortable on a, on a Zoom call and Zoom call, and uh, actually have them learn things like within a very short session. So, how did you get into that, and what are the main things you learned on how to basically facilitate learning online? So, online facilitation is a is a huge deal. It's one of those things where I don't think humanity really gets it just yet of how powerful this thing is. The reason it's powerful is that when human beings get together in person magic happens, right? That's when companies get founded. It's when beautiful art gets made. You know, if you go to a, a concert and there's a band playing and incredible, it's uh, human beings in rooms is the source. Like collaboration is just really, really powerful. Facilitation is how we get people to collaborate well on the internet. 
obviously there's things like Reddit and other communities where there's projects that people are part of that are wildly powerful. But online facilitation is, well, how do we do that more live? How do we do that, all of us in a Zoom room, how do we work together? And facilitation is the art of steering and guiding people to a common goal of getting something cool done. The reason that's so powerful is that we can do it from the comfort of our own homes. And if you want to collaborate with people in person, it involves only working with the people where you live or it involves jumping on planes, both of which can be constraints and constricting. If we have Zoom and you got broadband, the world becomes your collaborators. And that's a big deal. But we're still figuring out what that means, right? Zoom can be better, more engaging, and has some advantages over meeting in person. Online facilitation input does that. The reason I love teaching this stuff is for a decade, I was on planes, just traveling all over the country or all over the world, helping entrepreneurs, you know, running these programs and facilitating them in person. I learned how to do it in person. I'd been using Zoom for a while, but I was able to figure out because I'd done that for so long, I knew what to translate and how to do it. The biggest takeaway I got from figuring out online facilitation um, is really interesting, which is people's ability, like their engagement matters more than you as the speaker, the information they're given. So that was a wild thing to learn, noting that there can be a, a really young, not PhD, not subject matter expert, but if they know how to get the room together and working on the project well, so much better. So, so many better outcomes happen than if you just have a brilliant PhD who's a subject matter expert who can talk and, and share good ideas. Like those do not lead to as good outcomes, right? And honestly, if that's how someone's treating a Zoom room, it should be a, a YouTube video or it should be an essay. Uh, facilitation is about how do we work together to get things done? And that's a lot of what I do with Minimum Bible Video, right? Is I want this room full of people helping each other out, giving each other feedback, giving each other ideas. And we, one of our kind of core ideas is that, and the same with it, with, I talked about customer discovery and about how before you build a product, go get some learning. Well, we do the same thing before you start filming. Filming is cognitively and logistically expensive. What that means is you got to get your lighting, you need to get your audio, or you need to plan, you need to make sure that the neighbor's dog isn't barking, you need to, all this kind of stuff. That takes time. Now, what doesn't take much time, and what's not too hard to do, is to, in a Zoom room, explain, well, here's what the video is going to be. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then other people in that room can say, well, have you thought about this? Or... Actually, that sounds very similar to somebody that's something over here. So that topic might already be fully articulated, fully sorted, right? So we like to do lots of nailing down the storytelling and narrow down the core ideas of what it is well before you even think about film, right? And that's one of the things that all I facilitation can give you. So I'm a big believer in it. And I think we're in the early days. And Zoom fatigue is just the people who complain about Zoom fatigue. It's because the facilitator isn't doing a good job. And they're complaining in the same way that we used to complain about reading online. Like you may be too young for this, Dom, but there was a time when people were like, oh, I hate reading on the screen. I only want to read paper fucks. Like, like I don't like, them. and that was an, a reaction that a lot of people had. Same thing when the Apple took away the keyboard. Like they were like, there's no physical keyboard. Like, no, this is terrible. Like, no, it's bad. And that's the thing. Zoom, we're just in the early days and great facilitators can, can let the room know, can let everybody know, hey, this can be dynamic, engaging, and Honestly, some of the most meaningful experiences I've had in my life in the last two years, they happened inside the Zoom grid. Nice. Yeah. And I remember like it was one, on one of your Zoom calls that was like really revealing to me in, in terms of what, what an online experience can actually be. Like I had I literally never, never experienced that before. So I'll, that was, that was I'll something for your listeners if you want, like just a, I think you might've been part of one of these, but 
one thing in to make Zoom powerful is, again, don't think about information transfer. Think about how do we bond people together? And so one way that we do this is we something called an avalanche, which is I'll ask the room, hey, like, how's everybody doing? And one, one, thing, one way we check on people is instead of just tell us how you do, we say, well, if your hand at the top of the screen, that means that you're 10 out of 10. And your hand down here, that means you're one out of 10. Let me know how you're doing. And, you know, people are all over. They, they'll report back. But there'll be someone who's here. And then I'll say, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? And they'll say, well, I just worked on this Excel file from my box. And, well, I didn't save it. And I can't find it. And so I just lost three days worth of work. And my boss is curious. So an avalanche is when we say, all right, well, you know, that was John. Sorry, John's having problems. Let's just give him a little something. What we're all going to do is, on the count of three, we're going to unmute. And we're going to say nice things to him. And... Again, it doesn't matter what people say. And of course, you can't even hear the audio perfectly because it's, it's 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 people all talking at once. What they are doing, is you get to know that it's a room full of people who give a crap about what you're working on. And this is going to think that people will coast off these for weeks. And usually what I do is I record them, turn it into a GIF and send it to them later just so they can tuck it away for the next time something bad happens, they have that. But what's powerful is it makes that person feel better and... I don't know, there's just something really powerful for the entire room to be part of something like that. It lets you see, hey, I'm helping someone out and helping someone out. I don't know, we don't have much time on this earth. If we can help other people, that's a beautiful thing to do. So that's one thing that is a great way to facilitate some good interaction and some good community in a room. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that work so well. And yeah, you really get that feeling of, of yeah, contributing to, to something bigger, bigger almost. And related to that, uh, I think you were, you were talking a lot about, uh, like storytelling as well. So like, how, how can we tell our story, I guess, to first build an audience, but then also to eventually lead to, to interest and sales for, for our product or our service or, or whatever it is we want to, we want to, we want to achieve. So storytelling is such a soft word. That sounds, it sounds like it's a stupid phrase. Like I don't like any of the connotation of the term storytelling. What I know is that bullet points and spreadsheets, those don't move anymore. And we are, at the, at the end of the day, we are feeling creatures and a story. If we're trying to have impact or we're trying to get someone to make a decision, a story does that better than anything else. It's persuasion, right? So given that, I think storytelling is important to learn. I've spent a lot of time trying to learn it and teaching it to people. And basically I boil it down to it's half being an entertainer, half being an educator, right? And good storytelling does that. There's tons of different frameworks you can use to get that across. But what's funny is the more stories you tell, the more you win. And when I'm trying to close a big customer, a really, you know, high profile deal, you know, it's dollar wise, very juicy. I give them a nice proposal and all this stuff. And I explain how it's going to be. And then I send them a, a one minute video of me telling a story about what this work reminds me of and why we think it'll be great for us to work together. That story, it's doing a lot. It's reminding them that I know how to do this stuff. It's letting them know that I care. And it's letting them know that I'm bringing this, this ability to tell stories that, well, if it works on them, it's going to work on the people who are, I'm, I'm working with as part of a project, right? And that's something that, again, no spreadsheet is going to do that. So there's lots of different ways of thinking about storytelling and how to do it well. What I recommend is something just called the HIT framework. Super simple. H-I-T. Hook, idea, takeaway. And 
The hook is how you get someone interested. It's otherwise we're just giving prose. We're just unpacking, explaining, lecturing something. And a story is not an explanation, nor is it a lecture. It's um, what the hook gets them engaged. The idea, that's the story. That's the what happened. What is the concept that you are unpacking and sharing? And the takeaway is what makes it relevant, right? Because if I just tell you an anecdote, an anecdote is an experience in my own life about something I did, which might be fine. But if I package up a takeaway, something that is useful to them, now I'm helping them. And that's how I get that educator-entertainer balance. If you want, Dom, I'd be happy to give you an example of the hit framework if you, if you wanted that. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Let's think of something specific to Traverse Link. When is the... Do, are you pitching people like customers and investors ever for this? So I'm not, not really doing B2B for now or mumbling uh, for investors at the moment, but I, I might be in, in a couple of months. So, Okay. Well, I'll just give you a quick example of a story and we can wrap up soon. But a, um, I was thinking of the day, there's this. So here, here's the H-I-T, hook, idea, takeaway. And the hook is 0.3% of movies that ever get written ever become full movies, right? Screenplay gets purchased by a major film studio actually becomes a feature. That is tiny percentage. And so I want to tell a story of like a really interesting path that idea took to becoming a film. The film's called Cry Macho, came out about a month ago. Clint Eastwood produced it. The story of this movement is really interesting though. The guy who wrote it, and Richard M. Nash, he wrote this pitch and he gave it, gave the screenplay to some film studios. This was in the seventies. And they said, no, thank you, but no, thanks. We don't care. And he's like, okay, fine. And then he went and he pitched it to some publishers, to book publishers. They liked it. They said, okay, yeah. They gave him $10,000 and he wrote this novel. 10 or 15 years later, this novel has actually become a bit of a favorite. It has an audience. People like it. It's been critically acclaimed, it's built up all of our readership. The movie studios hear about it and they reach out to them and they say, hey, this is a really cool book. Would, can we adapt this into a novel or adapt this into a film? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I just, as long as you're willing to pay me, I'm happy to adapt it to a screenplay. And they said, okay. And then he took his original screenplay, word for word, that he had given them before and gave it right back to them, of which they paid him for it. And they loved it. Then... 15 years later, it finally gets released. Finally, it's released as a major motion picture. But the takeaway here is our ideas, timing matters. And the more opportunities we get to pitch them, the more opportunities we have to explore them in different forms and formats and for the right people here and at the right time. And if we can do that, well, you'd be surprised. An idea is not really good or bad. A lot of it's just time. And so sometimes if I pitch something, it doesn't go well. Well, it might just mean that my task is off. It's not that it's bad. So that's an example of that framework real quick. H dive too. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah, we should probably wrap up. Yeah, there's another call happening nearby. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, I just had to think one or two more questions. So we'll be talking about, yeah, tools like, like Zoom, obviously. And there's even tools that you can use to uh, like record a video and like deep fake it. There's tools to, to learn more efficiently, like, like Trevor or so, obviously. Um, so what do you, how do you see tools, um, as having, as being an entrepreneur and having built software before, how do you see 
tools help in actually, yeah, creating more opportunities for learning, for collaboration? Where do you see that going? Yeah. I'm still sorting out the collaboration piece in terms of great tools. I'm mean, I use lots of tools, but the thing that I'm most excited about these days, space repetition in Rome. So that one backlinks in Rome to me were a very big deal. Backlinks make it be easier to make connections between things that I learn and highlighting and information capture all that was a big deal. But it still requires me thinking, having to remember to go back through notes, whereas space repetition, if you implement it in Rome, there's a couple of different ways to do it. What it means is that they'll just be presented with a note that you did maybe weeks, maybe months ago. And that getting surfaced passively to me is very, very powerful. So that's an area I'm really excited about. I'm more just, I'm still trying to figure out DAOs, Web3, and how to get involved in that world. I don't, so much in the startup world, it's like only things only work if there's this one owner, like a project needs one owner who if that person doesn't do, everything fails. Because if it's distributed amongst a ton of people and it's problems, and I'm still haven't figured out in Web3, when we're all collectively part of something like that, well, how do we not have massive diffusion of responsibility? And that's Jim Ping. I'm really curious about the question top of mind based on what you just asked. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I'll give you a free account to Traverse as well, because I'm sure you'll, you'll be very interested in the space repetition there as well. So I think we covered uh, a lot of uh, areas here, Cam, and learned a lot about your journey. So one question I always ask at the end is who would you like to see next on the podcast? I'd like to see them. So that I can then re reach out to them saying that I was referred to you, of course. Naval Ravika. Do you want someone who's like part of the Twitter internet world that we swim in, or do you want someone who has nothing to do with that world? I guess pragmatically, it probably is somebody, somebody who's like a bit big on Twitter at least. Yeah. Because I know, I can think of a gentleman, there's a guy named Maxwell who I'm going to meet with next week, who's a PhD in learning science. And I think he would be very interested in the type of work you do. Why don't I talk with him and I'll see if it's a good fit and I'll see if he's the type of person who'd be good for this. But yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. Looking forward to that. Cool. Well done. Thanks. Cool. Tune in so appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Kevin. It was a, it was a great chat. So I'm sure we'll, we'll be in touch again and uh, see you then. All right. Thanks yeah. for being here. Bye-bye.